All right, so um, I decided to title the tonight and however many little bits we have to add on to it of, of why Jesus died. Um, for, for some of you, that might sound like a, why do we need to explain that? We already understand it. I, I would propose to you that um, we probably don't in the context now of what we've learned about other things. Now, um, in what I say to you tonight, as I say often now many times when I go out, um, if, we, if we propose some different thoughts, it is in no way questioning your integrity, your, your passion for Jesus, your, um, the, the uh, genuineness of your love for God and your commitment. Okay, so do we understand that? None of, it's not a pass or fail thing. This is, this is not a, a right and wrong thing. This is just as trying to add some pieces into our journey that now are essential to say, if we now think this and if we now think that, um, we have to be able in the context of that to be able to explain why Jesus, what Jesus did, and why Jesus died. <clears throat> so some of the stuff tonight, for the sake of time, I will, I will read to you as quotes. Uh, some we'll just talk about and break out a little bit. I'm very grateful to um, a guy named Baxter Kruger for... Um, some helpful terminologies that contribute nicely to this journey. So I'm saying this because we're on record, we're on tape, we're on, and uh, you know I do want to give due credit that um, that some of the inspiration, certainly in terms of verbalising this, comes from Baxter Kruger, particularly his book, uh, the the Undoing of Adam, which is an excellent little book about this fat. If you're not a big reader, you can't get it on Kindle, so you have to read it as a real book. But it's well worth reading. So let's make a start. The gospel, typically preached by modern evangelicals, and in varying degrees, I would say, also uh, scattered throughout the church, whether it be you know Roman Catholic perspective or a Orthodox perspective, whatever. Some of these aspects still come into that. But <clears throat> those of you who are raised in an evangelical environment... And by that, for some of you, again, because we have to explain these things now, by evangelical we mean people who hold to a belief system that holds the essence of a personal faith in God through Jesus and expresses that faith, which is where the evangelizing evangelical comes in, are broadly known as evangelicals, okay? Um, Really, it's the emergence of what came out of Martin Luther's Reformation. But I, I don't particularly like the term now because the truth is it, it's much broader and it can become very discriminatory almost that, like, if you don't belong to a certain brand of the church, then you're not really evangelical or believe that Jesus is the way of salvation, whatever. So, but I say that just because having quoted this, that's, that's what was here, okay? So, so this gospel, it, it's the gospel that was typically preached to me and that I typically preached for most of my ministry life. And it basically looks like this, okay? God is holy, uh, but what we meant was holy as in the legal sense, meaning morally perfect, without fault, okay? God is holy. The human race has fallen into sin and is guilty before God. And since God is holy... He cannot allow sin to go unpunished. He must act justly. 
Justice requires punishment. But God is also loving, so he sends Jesus Christ to take our place. On the, our place. On the cross, the guilt of the human race is placed upon Jesus Christ, and Jesus suffers the just punishment for our guilt. The cry of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is interpreted as the moment of moments when the Father, being too holy to look upon evil or sin, turns his back on his Son in utter abandonment. The Father forsakes his Son. And that forsakenness, that abandonment, and its unsearchable agony is then interpreted as the punishment for our sins that satisfies God's justice in this legal or evangelical model. I'm over familiar with that. See, 60 seconds, there's the belief. And that then the, the outcome of that is that God now forgives us if we repent because our debt to him is paid and his anger is satisfied. How many of you are familiar with that explanation of the gospel? What, what we're going to do is challenge that, okay? There are elements of it which, which may be true, but we are going to challenge that concept. But before we do that, we need to understand why we have defined the gospel as being that. It's very interesting, isn't it, that we don't turn a hair um, at what really is a manifestation of somebody seriously ticked off to the point where they would be so uncontrollably angry that they would actually take it out on their own son. So some of these things we never thought, did we? Because we, we were told this is, this is the way it is. And so we, we never considered what that actually might say about the Father, what that might say about his version of justice. And then, of course, the, the, when you carry that story forward, it, in order for that to work, then you have to have God is angry, his anger must be appeased. If you please him, you'll be blessed. If you upset him, you'll be cursed. And so we have to have then the whole idea of the, of the narrative that says we have to have a specific kind of heaven, which is the reward for those who believe and have stayed in fellowship. But then, of course, we also have to have a hell to destroy and punish those who have, have not believed in God. Now, um, some of those things, I dare you to think, I, the way I was raised about God, I was scared to think some things because I thought even the thought of it would put me out of fellowship with God and I'd finish up in hell. Which when you think about it, it's really sad if even just the feeling that you can't think about these things because God will judge you severely. What does that say about God when on the other hand we say God is love, God is kind, God cares about humanity? So, if you follow that thinking through to the ultimate conclusion, then um, uh, God is far worse than Hitler. You know, Hitler oversaw the, the killing of six million Jews and uh, gays and gypsies and disabled people. But we're now talking about a God who will not actually put six million people to death, but will actually put them in eternal conscious torment forever and forever and forever with no way out for some finite thing that they have done in this earth. Uh, some of them by not understanding, some of them deliberately. But then we have, is that really how you see a loving God uh, dealing with, with the problem of human failure and human lack. Now, 
Many would argue with you when you raise this, but, you, you know, you can't argue with God. God is God, so, so, you know, what he does is wise and good, and if he says that's the way, then there's a good reason for it. I'd like to know the reason, and I don't believe that the Bible gives us a reason, and I don't think the Bible is a book that says, just believe God, and God's not going to give you a reason, because the whole point of Jesus was the Word became flesh, and lived among us so that in Jesus we could see, as Hebrews tells us, the exact representation of the Father. Now, that doesn't sound to me like a God who wants to keep himself to himself. It sounds to me like a God who's saying, I want you to know me. I want you to understand my nature, my character. So that gives us some opportunity to decide, even if we don't have all the answers, we know that some things we've concluded may not actually be the answer. Okay. So, so this is the model of the gospel that um, those of you who've been you know, in the Christian faith for any length of time will be familiar with and repeated and accepted. And even those of you who've maybe not been in Christian church circles for long, I, I guarantee if we dug, this will be your image of what the gospel is, okay? <clears throat> now, what we need to understand in, in working this through is that what God had on his hands with the fall of Adam... So we're using that term generally, and what we mean is what happened in the garden with the tree and all that stuff um, that is commonly known as the fall. Um, some would call it the fall from grace. I would totally disagree. It was a fall from trust, a fall from relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit in what God wanted to share with him. Um, but what God had in, on his hands in the fall of Adam was not a legal problem, but an organic one. Now, this is very important because what I'm going to show you is we have been trained to interpret Scripture through a legal mindset. So, therefore, the solution to sin will always be the solution that you would see as in a legal court of law. Therefore, your viewpoint on punishment, your viewpoint on separation will be dictated to by that model. So what I propose to you is that, is that the fall and what Adam did was not a legal problem that God had to resolve legally. It was an organic problem that was happening inside the heart of man who was free. And we're going to talk about that more extensively in other sessions when we'll talk about the, the key to this, which the Bible talks about two Adams. In 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about the first Adam and the last Adam. This is very important because Adam means the first man, the originator. So if we have a first Adam, something originated there, but if we have a last Adam, something originated there. Now, Jesus is known as the last Adam, okay? And, of course, part of this whole miracle as we unfold it will be that Jesus, because he was human, was part of first Adam. But because he was divine, he was the last Adam. So he was able to kill one while keeping the other alive. So, so there's this amazing thing going to go on at the cross where, where one Adam is killed... So one Adam can live forever, and the Bible says that we've come into that last Adam, which is part of the whole miracle, but that's, that's getting much further ahead than we are now. So, um, we, because of our influences, have made the problem um, in the Bible that relates to humanity and sin, we have made it a legal problem, okay? 
So the holiness of God becomes the dominant and overriding characteristic of God. And his love becomes subservient to that rather than his love redefining what we mean by the holiness of God. So what has happened in our legal thinking, God is holy. God is so perfect. And not only is he so perfect, but he demands perfection in order for him to have communion with anyone other than himself. So therefore, basically, if you're not perfect, you can't be in communion with God. So, so this holiness of God becomes the dominant and overriding characteristic of God. Like, like the main thing God is wanting to do is preserve his holiness and make sure that we humans don't mess up the holiness of God, the holiness of heaven, whatever. Nothing could be further from the truth. Now, God is holy, but not in the legal sense that we have determined it. So, so I believe there's been a Western Christian conversion of the idea of holiness. So, so we've, we in Western Christianity have redefined what we think holiness is because, because through that legal thing, we have reconceived it through a Roman concept of law and order, crime and punishment, and retributive justice. So, so you come into the Christian faith and you, you find out that the message and the application of the message and the way it runs is law and order, crime and punishment, retributive justice. So what is God doing? God's enforcing the law because he wants to keep order. And if you break the law, you've committed a crime. And if you've committed a crime, you've got to be punished. And there has to be retributive justice against you. Do you understand what I'm saying? So even our understanding of the holiness of God becomes like this legal ideal that we must live up to. And if we don't, we're going to be legally challenged. And as it is with the legal system, if you still don't live up to it, then you're going to be arrested, accused, condemned, punished. Okay? So these, these are our models. So um, I would propose to you that holiness in its purest form has got nothing to do with God being morally perfect. I would say it's got more to do with God being relationally complete. So holiness is not a statement of God's uh, legal condition, it's actually a state of his organic condition. God is holy because he and the Son and the Spirit are in perfect union, perfect fellowship. And of course, God's whole idea was in creating humanity was he was so excited about what he had with the Son and with the Spirit. This is what we would call Trinitarian doctrine, the Trinity, Father, Son and Spirit. So excited about this fellowship, this relationship, that God's busting at the seams to say, we've got to share this. So you and I were created through Adam's race, because not because God wanted ants that he could burn with a magnifying glass because he was getting a little bit bored. When in essence, if you think of the gospel as we've just described it, your existence on earth is God gets out the magnifying glass and you know, focuses the sun to burn the legs off the, the ants like some bored kid, you know, with a cruel streak. God, God is not, you were not created to fulfill some moral, legal obsession that God had. You were actually created to share in his fellowship, 
to share in his being, to be part of who he was. So he created us in love. And of course, the first words to Adam's was, and God blessed them and said, be fruitful, increase in number, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it. So God's idea with humanity was to bless us. Now, uh, if you look through a legal framework, that would say then that, that God changes his mind if we, don't, if we don't just be what he thinks we should be. I would propose to you, I'm not going to go deep into this, that in that case then, I'm a better father than God is. I'm certainly a better grandfather than God is a father. Because the more you become a grandfather, the, the more tolerant you become, the softer you get, the more understanding you become, not just of what happened, but why it happened. And so if God fulfills the model that some of us have believed, I'm actually better at relationship with humanity than God is. Now I know that I'm not. So therefore he has to exceed those concepts that I have and in that, in that exceeding that I propose to you that, that holiness is about the wholeness, the completeness, the perfect fellowship. Uh, I love something Baxter Kruger says because he, he talks about Isaiah and um, in the beginning part of Isaiah, Isaiah has been called by God to speak to the people of the Jewish nation. And uh, he kind of has a little whinge, I can't speak, I'm no good, I'm rubbish, and you know, all that stuff. And uh, there is a revelation there that he sees, he gets a revelation of heaven, and he sees that they're crying, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. Uh, heaven and earth are filled with his glory. And um, Baxter says, the reason you get the holy, holy, holy is because that's really an expression of Father, Son, and Spirit. That those three together make up the full holiness of God, but he's saying, fantastic the Son, fantastic the Spirit, fantastic the Father, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So it's not a statement to terrify you, it's a statement to bless you and say there is a wholeness and a completeness and a beauty uh, and a fullness about the Godhead, about Father, Son and Spirit that we don't need to fear, but that's our expression. So somewhere along the line, we reinvented the definition of what we think holiness is for it to become, like I say, in the Roman concept of law and order, crime and punishment and retributive justice. And within this world of pure law and holiness, it came to mean legal perfection. So somewhere in that process of defining holiness this way, it came to mean legal perfection or unerring keeping of a moral code. So, so we then have on us, you know, because we're told that, that, that God says, be holy therefore as I am holy. That's a pretty tall order, isn't it? If, you, if that means moral perfection, if that means unerring keeping of a moral code and, and never legally getting it wrong, that's a pretty tall order, isn't it, for God to to require that we be holy in our own strength as, as he is old. Now, we, we haven't time to talk about all that, but I, I could show you very clearly that that was never what, what God meant. But, but our redefining of words like that have not helped us. Now, it's this notion more than any other that has shaped our understanding of God's relationship with humanity and our understanding of the work of Christ itself or himself. Or in other words, if, if that kind of holiness is the goal and that is a legal requirement, 
then we have to make what Jesus did be the correct legal contribution to the problem so we can be legally released from the legal condemnation that we're under because we haven't legally fulfilled that kind of perfection. So what I'm trying to show you is that, um, you know, in in all sincerity, uh, how we understand then the sending of Christ and the work of Christ has to support that concept because if God is holy and he's just and sin must be judged and God can't look on sin, we have to make all the other elements fit that model. My question is, what if the basic premise is wrong? If the basic premise is wrong, then the developments on the premise will not be right. Now, again, I do not believe for one minute that anyone has acted insincerely. You know, I preached from this understanding extremely sincerely for a great part of my life. So sincerity was not the issue. And because I don't believe God is the legal God, I don't think he looks and says, you preached that wrong, so you're under judgment. Because that would, right? He says, I'll bless him. And he's been trying to bring me to a different understanding, which is what God does with us. So, so out of that notion, we, we shape very much. So, so that concept of what is holy and how God deals with that is what has shaped most of our understanding of God's relationship with humanity and the work of Christ. It's actually framed God's relationship with humanity in terms of law and guilt and punishment. So I know up and down the land I can go in any number of churches and the framework in which all this works is law and guilt and punishment. Okay. Now again, that's not saying churches are bad or, or, or leaders are, are, are wrong or insincere and you know, it, it, it's not saying that God can't work through that. It's just saying that if you sit and listen, you'll realize that the framework in which everything goes is law and guilt and punishment. You've broken God's law, you are guilty, you must be punished. Therefore, Jesus must be simply God's solution to your law-breaking and your guilt to free you from your punishment. Okay? Is all this making sense? Okay? So that, that's the basic framework. So... Um, if you look at it from this legal perspective, that the, the Bible's just a book of rules that God is looking for us to be legally perfect and we mustn't get anything wrong and if we do all this, then what happens is from a legal perspective, your conclusion is that Christ was changing how God sees us. So we're, God is holy, he must be just, we're sinners, God can't look on sin, Jesus comes and gives his life on the cross and becomes our sin bearer. And and once that has happened, God can now look on us because of Jesus. Therefore, what you're telling me is that that what Christ was accomplishing was changing how God sees me. Okay? However, from an organic perspective, not a legal perspective you will come to understand that when Christ gave his life, he was changing how we see God, not how God sees us. So then the whole ball game changes because suddenly 
rather than us becoming these unimportant people who God just kind of says, well, okay, then, fine. You know, Jesus died, so I'll give him a break. We actually become the center of the whole thing. It, it's, not a, it's no longer about God. I am so angry. I am just so, I've I just got to kill somebody and I'm going to kill all those people. But what am I going to do? Well, Jesus, you've offered yourself. I'll kill you instead. C- can you understand what that is explaining is that God has been for most of time an angry God, a cruel God, a God who has been looking all the time to punish to put to death. So if we don't change that image of God, we will hold that first perspective that we have understood about the gospel. So from a legal perspective, if you think Jesus was the legal fulfillment of God's requirement, then when Jesus dies, suddenly he changes how God sees us. But if it's organic and there's something bigger going on, what Jesus was doing was changing how we see God. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to begin to prove that to you um, in, in a little while, just to show you how as we work this through, that is actually the picture that the Bible is painting and not the other one. So a couple of questions. Is Jesus really simply the sponge who soaks up the anger and violent holy rage of God the Father? Is that what Jesus says? The sponge who soaks up the anger and violent holy rage of God the Father. Because that's, that's unfortunately the image that we have to deal with. And, and see, see, when we sing, for example, you know, that songs about how Christ stood in our place and the wrath of God was satisfied, uh, you know, it's wonderful. It's one of those moments, which is great. Um, but what I've had to realize is those words really are wonderful because they are like, they're like uh, ointment to a soul that believes that first bit that we believe. So, so it's like, that's wonderful. You know, the wrath of God was satisfied. But, but step back a bit, the wrath of God. So God's wrath indiscriminately unleashed upon most of the human race to the point where Jesus has to be cruelly tortured and killed simply because God is so mad that somebody better die here or I'm not going to be happy. Do you understand what I'm saying? So it at least forces us to have to reevaluate. It's wonderful we hear because when we're raised under that, oh, the wrath of God is satisfied, I'm free. Wonderful, great, nothing wrong with feeling that. But my question is, but what am I then suggesting about God? What am I suggesting about his nature and his character and his holiness? So, another question. If, if that's true, Jesus soaked up the anger and violent holy rage of God the Father because God was so angry he had to have somebody to pour his wrath upon so he could, so he could look upon us... Then here's the other problem. How come Jesus doesn't seem to feel the way that God feels about sin and humanity? Now there's a problem for you. You see, the Bible tells us in Hebrews that Jesus was the exact representation of the Father. Okay? Not an image, not not a representative like an angel, but the exact representation of the Father. It says it calls him the very essence of his being. And so Jesus said what? 
if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, I know Jesus got upset about the religious behavior of the Pharisees, and, and, but in essence, when you look at the life of Jesus, do you see a Jesus who's going around angry at humanity because they have not lived a holy life and have broken the laws of God and are going their own way? Or do you see a Jesus who is incredibly compassionate, doing everything he possibly can to make room for inclusion and blessing and release? So when the woman comes, for example, to anoint him, who has an expensive jar of perfume, and she's a prostitute, and she's bought the expensive perfume from the money that she's made from sleeping with guys as a prostitute, and she comes to anoint Jesus and cries over him and wipes his feet with the hair. And of course, the, the religious leaders in the house said, if he knew what kind of woman this was, he would not have allowed her to do this thing. And yet Jesus said, leave her alone. He said, she's seen more than you've seen. In fact, she's anointing me for my burial. Or in other words, she's understood something about my purpose of being that you've never understood. And the truth is that because Jesus did know what kind of woman she was, was the very reason why he let her do what she did. So if you've got Jesus letting the practicing prostitute anoint his feet with the fruits of her labors and blessing her, if you've got Jesus not putting condemnation on the woman caught in the act of adultery, if you've got Jesus calling Zacchaeus the, the quizzling, betraying tax collector, working with the Romans against the Jews, going to his house for tea and saying, this day the kingdom has come to your house, You've got all that stuff going on, you know, people who shouldn't have been included being included. Now, if Jesus is the exact representation of the Father, the very essence of his being, and if you've seen him, you've seen the Father, my question is, where's the anger? Where's the wrath? Where's Jesus saying, you bunch of scumbags? I've only come for one reason, because you're such worthless worms that if somebody doesn't do something, if somebody doesn't die in your place, if somebody doesn't beat himself up, because in essence you could argue that Jesus was going to beat himself up because if he and the Father are one. And if somebody doesn't, you'll never be free. Is, was that Jesus' message? Was it ever Jesus' message? The question is why? Because if he was the, if he was the Word made flesh... So the very saying of God, all that God is, the very expressing of God, if he was the word made flesh, why wouldn't Jesus, full of wrath and full of anger and full of judgments and saying, you guys, you just wait, but you just better be grateful that I'm going to stand in the way of this. He never did it. So we have a problem we have to resolve, which is, if Jesus is the representation, how can God be something that Jesus wasn't unless God's a schizophrenic? Unless God's idea of dealing with humanity is good cop, bad cop, right? Which unfortunately is most people's gospel, good cop, bad cop. God's the bad cop, the Father's the bad cop, because he kind of loves you, but he's going to have to judge you. But Jesus steps in to save you. He negotiates with the Father, so it's not as bad as it could be, good cop, bad cop. Now, when, you put it, when I put it this way, how many of you realize that that can't possibly be... The, 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 the truest expression of this story, this narrative, it, it, it is so contradictory that it's frightening. 
So, so in view of all this, there's a question that we should answer. Uh, and we've, this is not a new question, but it's a very important question that's relative to what we're teaching. And the question is this, is sin a crime to be punished or a disease to be healed? Is sin a crime to be punished or a disease to be healed? And if you know, if you, if you have a genetic disorder of which the end result is premature death, you would not punish that person for having a disorder of which the manifestation is premature death. Okay? Well, how many of you know the manifestation of this thing that we call sin is premature death? Okay? Because we should have lived forever, but, but God said to Adam, on the day you eat of the tree, if you eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if you try to do it your way, if you try to self-define your righteousness, the day that you do that, you will die. And of course, in that moment, he didn't just physically die. And I would also argue with you that what I was taught, that he died spiritually, is also not essentially true. Because the fellowship and relationship with Adam and God continued. We, we were misled to believe that somehow God can't look on sin, so God had nothing to do with the human race from that point. It's just not true. How God comes down and says to... to, to um, Cain, where's your brother? And he said, am I my brother's keeper? Or in other words, God's still talking to Cain. Cain's the son of Adam and Cain's murdered his brother. God's still talking to him. So therefore the idea that God turned his back on humanity because he can't look on sin has fallen the first hurdle, right? We're right fresh, it's just happened. He's talking to the guy who's just murdered his brother. So, so some of those ideas we were given is because in the legal model... If you broke the law now, you have to be separated from, from the righteousness the right way so that now you cannot be dealt with in the right way. Or in other words, you have to be imprisoned for your crimes. <clears throat> so, so a lot of these concepts, what I'm trying to show you is they come because having been given a basic model about the holiness of God and the justice of God and all that. We have to make everything else fit that. And sadly, I have to be honest, that's what I did for years. And I did it because I was told that's, that's what it was. So being the good boy I was, it's like, well, if that's how it is, that's how it is. Um, but of course, as you begin to examine these things and look at these things, you have to have the courage to say, that's not how it is. So, so... Is sin a crime? As I said, you, if a person has something that leads them to premature death, your objective would be not can we find a punishment for this person's uncaring sickness, how dare they be sick, and cause weight and burden on society and the NHS, if whatever, how can they dare to be that? We must punish them. No, what you're doing is all the time is saying, let's, let's see how we can heal this person because if we heal them, then the consequence of their problem, 
premature death, we can allay that so that we now give them the gift of life. Now, what I want you to see and understand is that, is that God's whole concept right from the beginning was not, I'm going to punish sin because it's a crime. He's going to say, I'm going to heal people because sin is a disease. So we could also talk then about how we, even now, have been infected by this um, genetic virus, this genetic disease of sin, and how it has impacted our life. And of course, that's where, that's where talking about the two Adams is, is going to is going to come in there because God has to finish that awful curse once and for all. And the good news is the curse is finished. Now, the New Testament talks about how we still live in the curse when the curse is finished, which again is really stupid, but you know, we'll get to that as we, as we get to it. So, so um, my personal view now, if you want to know where I stand, is that I don't believe sin is a crime to be punished. I believe it's a disease to be healed. And uh, I think in that wonderful, in Isaiah 53 and verse, verse 3 where it says, He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement that brings us peace was laid upon him and by his stripes or by his wounds we were healed. Um, I was taught that that was separate things to do with sin and deliverance and, and healing. But actually I think it's one thing that covers all of it. So it does cover our physical state, does cover our mental state. Um, but I actually believe that the healing also um, covers that by what Jesus suffered, healing comes to the sinful state of humanity. And uh, one could argue that, that in one sense that there is no such a thing anymore, but that's another conversation uh, that we look at differently. Okay, so uh, what we're entering into in, in this study, as I've told you before, is a tale of two Adams. Um, and if we can convey that as we go along in the study, then uh, you will have been helped to understand actually that Jesus was not God's enforcer of the rules. Here comes Jesus. He's the enforcer, okay, from the Godfather. And sadly, I think, you know, we talk about a loving God, but we kind of, we have, you know, the sort of... Uh, um, on the movies, how they've shown the, the mafia godfather as being very caring of the family, and yet, you know, other people like we're going to take him out and kill him. Um, unfortunately, I think we've made God a kind of mafia godfather who he kind of loves those who are close to him, and you're going to get taken care of, but if you've crossed him, you are getting, don't go down a dark alley, you're going to get taken out. So, so what we need to understand in this is that that this whole issue of God is, is that it's a tale of two Adams. It's about the first Adam and his problem and how God corrects that and heals that through Jesus, the last Adam. So to conclude this session, um, which doesn't mean I'll be done in two minutes, it's just that this is, conclude this session, I have to bring you to, to, um, to look at, let's call it the signposts to point us in the direction God wants us to go with this. Okay? What, I, what I've learned wonderfully over recent years is that, is that the narrative of the Bible, see here again, is that if, if, God, if God works from a legal perspective of his holiness and he's trying to reinforce that and police that, then, then the Bible is a, is a legal 
rule book and you will always read it as that. So it's the book that tells you what's wrong and what's right and how to stay on the good side of the law um, and, uh, and how not to be on the wrong side of the law and what will be the penalty if you do. And so we read it as a legal document. Um, when actually the Bible, because God didn't initiate this from a legal perspective but from an organic perspective, the Bible should not be read from a legal perspective. It should be read from an organic perspective. In other words, um, it, we have to have what is called, I believe, this is my view, a progressive reading of Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean that Scripture doesn't have authority. It doesn't mean that it's not the Word of God. But what it means is we take it as it's a narrative that begins back here in Genesis and it brings us all the way through the New Testament books to here now. <laughs> so we're still reading it now, but we're reading it in the lives of one another. And we're reading it in God's dealings with humanity now. And we're reading it in our own lives. It fascinates me how people get away on cloud cuckoo land. For example, Paul wrote to his, his, his young leader, Timothy, and said, all scripture is inspired by God. How many of you have read that? Um, but how many of you know Paul was not a proud, arrogant man, so he wasn't talking about himself then? See, what we forget is what Paul meant is all the scripture that was available to him then, he believed was inspired by God, which was, which was most of the, what we know as the Old Testament, the Jewish, the Jewish Torah. And he believed that he had inspiration, or in other words, he believed that God had breathed through that. Okay. Um, how many of you know that breath is a... Breath's a funny thing, because you breathe and then that breath's gone. And your next breath is what's important, not your last breath, right? So if you try to live on your last breath, you ain't going to last for very long. So if we're not careful, what we do is we take the Bible and we try to make it God's last breath, rather than saying no, what's happened is God, God breathes in chapter 1 verse 1 of Genesis and then he breathes in chapter 1 verse 2 and then he breathes in chapter 1 verse 3 and he believes in verse 4 and he breathes in verse 5. We come through and then God breathes in, in Deuteronomy and he breathes in Leviticus and so what's happening is we have a living, a living understanding of a, a progressive revelation a progressive relationship that's being described to us. So, so if, we, if we don't treat it as that, then, then for example, I, I was raised with the story of reading the Bible that, you know, uh, you know, the Bible is God's word to you. You must follow what the Bible says. So I've done this myself. So the whole thing of, you know, when we did have Bibles, you can't do it so much with an iPad, but, you know, I need a word, God. And of course, there's a little story told about the guy who said, God, you, you know, I'm really struggling. I need, this is your inspired word. I believe every word in this book is true. So just give me a revelation. So he opens the Bible, puts his finger in it, and it says, Judas went out and hanged himself. Right? Which is in the Bible. That, that's, that's, that's there. So he's a little confused and said, okay, God, I need some clarity on that. So he flips it, puts his finger in again and looks at the verse and it says, go and do thou likewise. Now both those verses are in the Bible. 
And, and, and the story is, I believe every, every word of it was inspired by God. But do you see how, if you read it a certain way, you could say, God, God told me to go and hang myself because one verse says, go and do thou likewise. And the other verse says, Judas went and hanged himself. So we all know that's stupid. But most of the time, we've looked at the Bible in that kind of model. So when, when, when Paul says it's God-breathed, it means that every time God has breathed, something's happened and it's been said. But it's the whole thing that makes up who God is. So the Bible is not God. The Bible is something to help us follow God in what he's breathed out. And what a progressive reading means is that as we follow the story, we don't get so involved in the story that we make the story more important than the story is. Because we realize it's a story. It's not a statement, it's a story. So as I understand what happened in the garden and I understand what happened with Abraham and some of the stuff that goes on and Jonah and all these and David and I'm coming through and all the way through to Paul and, and Matthew and, and Peter and all these guys, what's happening all the time is I'm following the living understanding of the breathings of God. So, so I don't get stuck in it being a legal document that says you have to do this. I realize what it is, it's a showing me how God deals with humanity, how God speaks to people, how God loves people. Now, there are things in there that will come alive to you and God will use them to inspire you. But the interesting thing is even when Paul wrote that, because people will say, you know, both the Old and the New Testament, it's inspired. Well, Paul had no idea that anybody other than who he was writing to would ever read the letters that he was writing. When Paul wrote to Timothy, he had no idea that we would be sat here almost 2,000 years later reading a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. It was never in his mind. He wasn't writing to the world. When he wrote to the church in Corinth, that's exactly what he was doing. It would be like me when I'm in America writing back here to the church in York. I wouldn't be thinking, oh, in 2,000 years' time, uh, there might be some people in Korea who will read Anne's epistle to the church in York, expecting that they will then take what I told you as a church in York and a people here with my relationship with you and say, that must be for us. We must do that. Do you understand? So that doesn't detract from the authority of Scripture. It just puts the authority of Scripture within something called a progressive narrative. So we look at the culture. We look at the context. We look at who said what to whom and why. And what we're looking for in there is not a legal rule. We're looking for the heart of God. Right? We're looking for the heart of God. So let me give you another example because we've just got a couple of minutes. Um, I, I have been deemed to be worthy of... Um, of being disfellowshipped by some people. What that means is we want nothing more to do with you. You're so wrong that, you know, you've redefined wrong and we can't mix with your types anymore. And the scripture that's always used for that in church circles is Matthew 18. If you've been around in leadership any length of time or been around church, people will say, Matthew 18, so it's Matthew 18. So, what Matthew 18 is about is, you know, if, some, if you find somebody who's at fault in some way or another, go and tell him, okay, you're at fault, okay? 
Uh, if they won't listen to you, it says take someone else with you. Right, I bought Chris, you're at fault, and she agrees with me you're at fault. Uh, and then it said if they still won't listen, take it to the... Now, now, of course, we have the translation church, which is a disaster. Take it to the ecclesia. Take it to the, the group of people who have a, who have a vested interest in how this all works. So I actually don't even personally believe that means take it to everybody who's gathered. I believe it means those who, who have a, a, a dog in this fight, those who've got some interest in dealing with this, take it to them. Because otherwise you've got this legal thing that says we're going to tell the world, we're going to broadcast this, put it in the papers. When God's not like that. God's, God's not out to expose you. He's, he's out to cover you. See? So, of course, then it says, and if they won't listen to the, you know, won't listen to all that lot, then uh, ultimately treat them as you would, right? Um, in the old Greek, a publican and a sinner, or a tax collector and a heathen. Now, what's fascinating is that the guy who wrote that, Matthew, had been a tax collector and a heathen. So how many of you think what Matthew was meaning when he wrote that was don't have anything to do with them, put them out? He's saying, treat them like I was treated by Jesus. Or in other words, it's a paradox. The guy who's writing it to you saying, I'm only writing this to you because I was treated as a tax collector and sinner by Jesus. And what it did was he transformed my life. See, So, so what I'm trying to show you, if, if you read it through a legal mindset, that becomes which it is in most churches, the legal process of discipline. When I say bring it on, that's fantastic. So, you know, I was probably a little naughty, but I wrote back to some of these people and said, in view of, of the fact that now you will treat me according to the scriptures, tax collector and sinner, I look forward to you showing me greater love, being more desirous to be involved in my life, giving me greater help and assistance, giving me even more acceptance now, of course, I've been a little bit naughty, but actually I was, what I was writing was the correct interpretation. So, so when you understand that, do you understand what I mean then by a progressive reading? We're in the story, and when you begin to see a different angle, you realize this book is full of grace, it's full of goodness, it's full of kindness, it's full of God trying to fix the problem, not kill the problem, okay? So, um, so, so concluding this, then, I want to look at, as I said, I, I got there because I said I believe that what happens in Scripture is there are these signposts that are, it's that way. So when you stop reading it like a legal document that's trying to, oh, I've got to get right with the holiness of God, and you read it thinking, okay, where's the signpost that takes me to the next checkpoint? Uh, you begin to see the Bible in a whole new way because you think, oh, that's interesting. That seems to be pointing too. So, so, in view of that, um, right there in the first three chapters of the narrative of the Bible uh, are the signposts that begin to point us to a correct understanding of why Jesus gave his life and what his blood, his death, the shedding of his blood was all about. Some of you have heard me talk about this, but we have to say it again and put it on record because I want it to be in your heart. So I'm going to take just a few minutes to go back to the book of Genesis to look at these signposts. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 18, I'll read a few verses here. 
The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. The Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field, the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So, so, right, whenever you see the word so, that indicates that this was a motivating factor in what's going to come next, okay? So, so the issue is there's no suitable helper for Adam. Adam's issue of fellowship is not resolved. So, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh, and then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he'd taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Not to do the cooking, washing, and ironing, okay? But to be bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, uh, and to be part of that, to share the fellowship that was to be in those two, just like it was in, in, in the Father, Son, and the Spirit in the beginning, to the extent that this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, they'll become one flesh. Lots of things we could say about that, but uh, the main thing I want to get through to you here is that is that is the issue that when to resolve what God saw was necessary for Adam's completeness, God did something to Adam. He put him to sleep and he opened up his side. Now, here's the question. What happens when you open up the side of a human being? Inevitably, you will bleed, okay? So, what we have here is the first instance in Scripture, by inference, because we're not told he bled, but of course, you know, he was flesh and, and, and bone and blood and that we have the first in, in, instance of, of what the phraseology I was raised with, the shedding of blood. Okay? And it's something that comes through the Bible about the shedding of blood. So, here's the issue. The first time that blood was shed was not to pay the price of sin. It wasn't, it wasn't to make it so that man could be accepted before God. It wasn't to change God's view of humanity, but actually the shedding of blood was in order to create something wonderful and amazing that was to do with fellowship and relationship and productivity and oneness and wholeness and the ability to complete and fulfill the promise of God because you can't multiply and fill the earth on your own if you're a guy, okay? So it's actually, it's creating an environment through fellowship and relationship where the fullness of all that God is can be manifest in the earth, okay? So that's the first mention, by implication. The reason I mention that is because I was always raised that the first mention of the shedding of blood in the Bible was when God made skins, made coats of skins from animals to cover Adam and Eve, Right? Now again, that was by implication because it doesn't say God killed an animal. It just says God made garments of skins to cover their nakedness, which of course skins come from animals. Therefore, either God had to separately and arbitrarily create animal skins, which if you're going to do that, why not just create a coat? Or, you know, why not create acrylic? 
or you know, or or if you're gonna create, yeah, a shell suit. Put them in a tracksuit. Sit down, boys. Don't disturb this. A tracksuit. So, so um, just so the implication is that having done that, he obviously. Uh, an animal gave its life. So, of course, we can, we can see the picture that's going to emerge. It's a signpost that says this is going to crop up a lot. Okay? An animal giving its life for a purpose. Okay? So, we get right into the Jewish thing and we've got the sacrifice of lambs and, and all that stuff. So, we know that's going to be part of the picture and we're going to deal with that as we go along. But by implication, that is not the, the, first, the first time of the shedding of blood. So the first thing we have to face then was, was, was the cross to resolve a problem or was the cross to release something within the problem, okay? To create what was necessary for God's promises and God's fellowship and, and, and God's call on humanity to be able to work, okay? So it has a very positive perspective, not a legal perspective. So if we take that on... Um, at the end of chapter 3, there's a very interesting uh, verse, okay, to, to chapter 3, verse 25 of chapter 3 says, uh, I think it's chapter 3, or is it, just put 25 of chapter 3, make sure I've got the right verse there. Yeah, the man and his wife were both naked, chapter 2, and they felt no shame, okay, I want you to note that. So they're naked, they felt no shame. So, so shame is not part of the human experience at this point, okay? And then comes what we know as the fall, okay? You know, Eve, the serpent, and Eve takes from the fruit of the tree. And we see the evidence then of felt shame and witness the attempts at a solution. So, you know, if they were needing to wear clothes and before that they were naked and had no shame, then you have to say in that case then all of a sudden something happened in this thing called the fall where they took from the tree they were told not to eat that caused shame to emerge and also it caused fear. So fear and shame begin to be part of their experience. So let's pick it up in chapter 3 and verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked so here's where the shame comes in. So they sold fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So they tried to deal with their own emotions. Now, you know, shame's a funny thing because um, how do we find, define shame in all of our lives? Some of us have a very distinct, you know, I feel ashamed of what I did. Uh, you may not define it in those terms, but what I would say is that all of us, in one way or another, make coverings for ourselves. Because however we want to define shame, guilt, fear, we all give the game away by what we do to try to cover up who we are and stop ourselves being seen just in the raw. Okay. So verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So even though they've made these coverings for themselves of the fig leaves, they obviously still feel inadequately covered in the context of what they're now expecting of God. 
I love verse 11. He said, who told you that you were naked? Or in other words, nobody had said, ha, you're naked. And, and there are stuff that we impose upon ourselves that we think is a problem to God that was never the problem to God. And we're guilty then of developing whole doctrinal systems about what, what matters to God when actually it doesn't matter to God because their nakedness, they felt shame and fear and wanted to hide. But God's like, so you're naked. So it appears the focus and level of, of, of Adam's awareness was the result of what he'd been told even by himself. And sometimes, sadly, that can happen. The church can do that to people can impose upon them things about how they stand before God, which are actually not necessarily true. So, anyway, let's move on. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. There's the, there's the implication that an animal was killed, that blood was shed, but this is the second mention, not the first mention. Um, so, so, the issue is this then. He makes coats of skins and covers them. Right, to cover their shame and their fear. So we could draw from this point, the only time you feel adequately covered is when you accept the complete covering of another. That's part of the whole signpost pointing when another one covers you is the only time you'll, you'll feel it. But the point tonight is this. Um, I don't think that was the point. I think this is the point. Why did God provide the covering? Because here's, here's, the, here's the signpost ready. For whose benefit? For whose benefit did the animal die and its skin be used to cover the shame and nakedness and guilt and fear of another? For whose benefit? To alleviate whose feelings? Did God do it? for his benefit, to alleviate his feelings because now he couldn't look upon these awful naked people because now they were sinners and God couldn't look upon them. Did he do it for his benefit or did he do it for their benefit? Did God need anything resolving in how he saw Adam and Eve after they sinned than before they sinned? Had God's attitude and heart towards them changed? So was God now ashamed of their nakedness or were they ashamed of their nakedness? So was this a provision of grace not to change how God saw them but simply to change how they saw themselves and give them a way to feel okay about themselves before the God who they felt might feel that way about them who didn't and therefore the signpost saying was the cross about doing something to change how God feels about humanity or was the cross simply changing how man feels about God, how humanity feels about God? Was, was the cross essential to change God's mind or was the cross essential for how we feel about ourselves in the presence of of God. Therefore, what is the essential nature of the cross, which we believed under the legal thing, was that God can't possibly look on us because he's so angry without the cross, then says that that probably was not the reason for the cross. And that actually the cross is a much more blessed, wonderful, relational, precious thing that actually God really did for us. Because the problem is under the old model, God did the cross for him. And the reason he did the cross for him was because God had to save you from him. 
Yeah? Who's the one who was going to punish you? Who's the one who was going to banish you to hell by that model? Who is the one who was going to judge you? Is it the devil? Was it your sin? Or is it God that was going to do all that? Therefore, by definition, your old model says that Jesus was sent to save you from God. And that you couldn't be saved unless, unless Jesus saved you from God. So although we talk about we were saved from our sins and we were saved from our... Actually, what we mean is we were saved from God. Okay? Now, is that really where this signpost is pointing? Or was this signpost saying, you need to be saved from yourself, not from me? And that therefore the essence of that applied to our understanding of the cross begins to change how we perceive the cross and why Jesus died. So, I'm finished with that except to say this. I've I've got three questions for you to go away with for some further review, okay? I want you to have a little think about these three questions. I'm not opening up for discussion tonight because I don't want it to go in seven different directions, okay? Okay. So I want you to go and have a think about these questions in the light of what we said. Number one, why did Jesus die? I want you to think a little further than for the sins of the world, okay? Yeah, we understand that, but in what context? Okay, why did Jesus die? Number two, was his death necessary? That's a daring question, isn't it? Was his death necessary? And the third question, what happened in his death and what does that mean for human experience and life? Okay, What happened in his death? What did it accomplish? What was going on? And what does that mean for human experience and life? So I'll give you those three again. Number one, why did Jesus die? Number two, was his death necessary? And number three, what happened in his death and what does that mean for human experience and life? Now, One of the problems when leaders like me ask questions like that, you start to try and figure out what it is that you think my answer to that question is. Right, you monkeys. You try and figure out what my answer to that question is. When when I don't want you to do that, okay? Because you can also assume, if I ask the question, why did Jesus die that I've got a problem with why Jesus died. I don't have a problem with why Jesus died. Or you can think, if I, if I ask the question, was Jesus' death necessary, that's a trick question, because actually I'm going to tell you his death wasn't necessary. And so you're all like, ew. So this, doesn't, this is not saying, I don't think his death was necessary, um, and I don't think Jesus needed to die, and, and it doesn't mean anything to human experience and life. These are genuine questions, okay? This is not a trick trick or a trap, okay? I want you to have a think about those things. Now, all I want to do to close off is just read you something that's a quote from what Baxter Kruger said in relation to our thinking about this. Listen to this and then we'll we'll just thank God and, and we're done. In personal relationships, in scientific enterprise and in Christian faith, and indeed in every sphere of human life, if we are to come to clear knowledge... We must seek to know things as they are in themselves. We are sentencing ourselves to misinterpretation unless we penetrate the dynamics that make a given thing what it is. That's what we're trying to do here. If terms or events such as the death of Jesus Christ, we must, in, in terms 
and events such as the death of Jesus Christ, we must discover the realities that created its necessity. Okay? And that's what we're trying to do. We must understand the context of his death. Anything less inevitably short-circuits our vision of Jesus, which in effect leaves us with the fake Jesus. And as we've tried to address our false image of God, we must address the same regarding Jesus. So I hope that's helped. I hope it's given you something to think about. And so we're just going to pray and we're done. Father, thank you for the wonder of, of, of the grace that you have given us and all that Jesus is and all that you are and all that we are seeking to understanding this. Help us to see the signposts that you've clearly put there that are really pointing us to a real understanding of Christ and the fellowship of Father, Son and Spirit and the wonderful love that you have for us that has been undiminished through the ages, totally unchanged, of which nothing can separate us from, that comes to us in Christ. We thank you that that is our position today and that you have challenged us not to think about how you have changed your image of us, but to challenge us that we change our image of you to see you as the God who is love and has been from the beginning of time, whose grace began before we ever existed and who still works on us today. We receive that. Help us to grasp it and understand it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're done.